Take your Bible and turn with me, if you would, to the book of Judges, chapter 21. Judges 21. If you have that little book there in front of you, then you can turn that to page number 8. If you don't have a book, then raise your hand. The team, one last time as they come through, will collect those as they slip out. The book of Judges is a time in Israel's history when they had gone through the wanderings in the wilderness. They had gone through the experience in the Red Sea. They had come into the promised land. Joshua led them into the promised land. As long as Joshua and his contemporaries were alive, things were going pretty well. Once Joshua passed off the scene, they started to adapt themselves uh, to the nations around them and then started to adopt their practices. And, and, and this cycle in the book of Judges kind of goes over and over again. God had told them, if you will obey me, I will bless you. There's a principle that's as old as Genesis and all the way through to the maps, and it's simply this, obedience brings blessing, disobedience brings conflict. God says, if you obey me, I will bless your life. If you disobey me, you're, there's going to be conflict. And because they adapted themselves to the surrounding nation, they were brought under the servitude of one of the surrounding nations, the Amorites, Hittites, Parasites, whatever, and they were brought into the bondage of that nation. In that servitude, they cried out in prayer and supplication, asking God to send a deliverer. In the book of Judges, it's a story of 13 judges, 12 men, one woman, that God raised up at strategic moments to provide salvation for the nation. And then there's a period of silence where for a while they again honor God, obey God, but invariably after a period of time, again, they end up adapting to the nations around them, adopting their practices, they get in sin, again God sends them a judgment through another nation, they're in servitude again, they cry out in prayer, again God raises up a judge, and this cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, so this goes over and over again in the book of Judges. Now stand with me if you would, we're going to one verse, Judges 21. You're going to sit the rest of the time, so get some exercise. Stand up. Judges 21, last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25. It's, it's actually a restatement of a verse earlier. It's a summary of the entire book. Here's what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Does that sound like America to you? Look at it again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Father, would you please take these remaining moments that we have and where we have been doing things in our own eyes, we have been living for us, for our thoughts and our time and our things. God, would you transform our vision that we might see things through eternal glasses, through your eyes? Not doing what's right in our eyes, what's right in yours. And we'll give you praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Turn back a few pages in your Bible to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13 is the story of the most famous judge in Israel. His name was Samson. And the story here is in Judges chapter 13. Now, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. So, so they're in this servitude part of this cycle of 40 years. And a certain man of the family of Danites, his name was Manoah, didn't have any children. An angel comes to his wife in verse 3 and says, you're going to have a son. And, and, and this son is going to be set apart. And verse 4 and 5 tell about what was called the Nazarite vow. There are three aspects of this vow. Verse 4 says not to have any wine or strong drink. Number two, not to have it touch an unclean thing or eat. 
And number three in verse five is not to have a razor come to his head. Now, now, now those were not things that made Samson strong. Those were outward signs of an inward set-apartness, an inward commitment to God. So in verse 24, she gives birth to a son. They call him Samson. He grows. The Lord blesses him. And verse 25 says, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him at times. God began to use this young man, Samson, to accomplish what he had been raised, born to do. Chapter 14 is the demise of Samson. He goes down to Timothy, and there he saw a woman. Samson had a besetting sin. He had an issue in his life that kept him from being all that God wanted him to be. He had a moral issue. And he goes to his parents in verse 2 and says, I saw a woman, first recorded words out of his mouth, by the way, get her for me as a wife. Now, back in this culture, they didn't have dating. If you wanted to get married, then your parents would talk with their parents, and a dowry had to be, and all the marriages were arranged. I think that would be a great idea for our culture, don't you? How many parents would agree with that? Pick out your kids' mates. Wouldn't that be great? How many teens would vote for that? Zero. Okay, right. Uh, but, but just think how that would help parent-child relationships. I mean, they might clean their room. Who knows? Uh, they might come home on time. If they knew you were picking out their husband or wife, it, it'd be a, a game changer. We were just in, in Florida a couple weeks ago and went out to eat with a couple who had an arranged marriage. They were from India, and he had come here for school, and, and they had written back. The parents arranged it. He flew back. They met three days before they got married. Now they've been married like 40 years or something. And uh, anyway, not happening. It, it's, <laughs> well, it is, but not here. Uh, verse 3. Now, the parents didn't like this. They said in verse 3, is there no woman among the daughter of your relatives or among our people? In other words, why can't you marry somebody in our youth group? Why, why do you have to go, you know, someplace else, right? Look at the last phrase of verse three, 3. Get her for me. She looks good to me. I like the way she looks, the way most relationships start. Well, th that marriage didn't work out. That's another whole story. Turn to chapter 16. Here's the next chapter of his love life. Chapter 16, he goes down to Gaza, sees a harlot, goes into her. They think they've captured him, tears the gates off the city. You know that story. Chapter 16, verse, verse 4. Here's the last chapter of Samson's love life. Verse 4, it came about after that he loved a woman without a sword whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came to her and said, entice him and see where his great strength lies. Now see, I, I think we have a wrong view of Samson. We, we picture Samson as some great big, you know, um, you know, WWF wrestler, you know, with whatever, you know, 6'5", you know, great big muscular person like Dan, you know. I, I, I think probably Samson looked more like me, just a 98-pound weakling. I mean, the deal is, if Samson was some great big muscle-bound Hulk, I mean, he went out at one point and killed a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. And if he had the, the physique to match, they'd say, man, that guy's been in the gym. Look at those guns. I mean, he has something. But I, I think Samson looked just like a normal weakling, and they were puzzled. How can that guy do that? And, and, and here's the deal. God takes the weak things of the world to overcome the mighty, doesn't he? He takes the foolish to confound the wise. See, see, here's the deal. God has all power, and we have nothing. But you bring all of your nothing to God's power, and you have all power. It's not about you. It's about who's in you. God's not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. And you may think, God just can't use me. I'm just, I'm just not much. I don't have much to offer to God. Great then God wants to use you. You bring all your nothingness to God, and then it's all about him and his power. And I think they looked at Samson and said, I don't understand this. Find out what the secret is because, because it doesn't make any sense. 
So she has her price, 1,100 pieces of silver from each of them. So verse 6, she says, tell me, Samson, how come you're so strong? He says, well, verse 7, I'll tell you what, if, if you took fresh cords, seven of them, never been dried, tie me up, I'd be weak like another man. So she calls the Philistine, says, I've got the answer. And so, so she gets these seven cords, and she ties them up, and she's got these guys hiding in another room. And verse 9, she says, the, the, she says, the Philistine's upon you, Samson. And he jumps up, and he snaps the cords like when a bowstring touches fire, and his strength is not discovered. So she says, you deceived me, told me lies. Come on, what's the real secret? He says in verse 11, I'll tell you what, if you take new rope, never been used, tie me up, I'd be as weak as the other man. So verse 12, she gets a new rope, ties him up. Says the Philistine's upon you, Samson. He jumps up, snaps the rope like a piece of thread, and strength is not known. You've told me lies again, verse 13. Okay, here's the deal. He said, if you take my hair, weave it into seven locks, fasten it with a pin, that, that would do me in. So she does that. Does the hair, weaves it. Verse 14, the Philistines are upon you, pulls out the pin, strength is not known. Now, I don't, Samson may have been the strongest man that ever lived, but he wasn't the smartest man that ever lived. I mean, seriously, you tell this woman three times, don't you think she's going to do it the fourth? But here's the deal. People who involve themselves in moral impurity make some of the most foolish choices. That they'll throw away a marriage, a life, a ministry, first a few moments' enjoyment. That there are some prerequisites to revival, and one of those is purity. I want to talk about that. And this week is not to make you feel guilty. I want to give you some solutions on how to live a pure life. And, and, and Samson was not, and as a result of that, he lost everything. So she comes in, and she cries a little bit, pressed him, verse 16, daily with her words, urged him so his soul was annoyed unto death. Talk about a nagging, contentious woman. There she was. But he finally spills his guts, tells her, here's the deal. He said, I made a vow. Now, here's the problem. Samson treated lightly the vows he had made to God. What vows have you made to God? You made a vow and said, God, I'm, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm gonna do, and, then, and then you backed out on that vow. He'd already broken the first two vows. He'd already been partying with the Philistines. He'd already touched an unclean thing. Remember, he, he killed a lion, and, and on the way back, there was a, a hive of bees. He wasn't supposed to touch a dead carcass. He didn't take seriously, he didn't treat seriously the vows he had made to God. Only one left. He said, well, here's the deal. I've, I've never had my hair cut. Okay? So verse 19, she puts him to sleep, calls for somebody to come in and shave off the seven locks. I want you to see verse 20. Here's the verse I want you to see. For the fourth time, the Philistines upon you, Samson. He woke from his sleep. He said, I'll go out as other times. I'll shake myself free. He knew something was wrong. He said, I'll do some jumping jacks, some push-ups. I, I, I get the blood going. He, I'll shake myself free. But look at this next phrase. Underline this. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And they seized him, gouged out his eyes, and he was a grinder at the prison the rest of his life. Samson lost the power of God in his life and didn't even know it. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of revival. And there, there's, there's all kinds, people have all kinds of strange perceptions. You may think of, of buildings filled with people or excitement or handling snakes. We don't do that until the second week. But, but there, you, there, there's all kinds of things that come to them. But, but here's, here's a definition. Revival is the presence, the power, and the peace of God resting on a life, a family, a church, a nation, and a world. The presence, the power, we talked about the presence of God this morning in Sunday school. And revival is God's presence, his power, his presence that captivates us, 
his power that, that, that changes us and his peace that sustains us, resting on a life, a family, a church, and a nation. And Samson lost the power of God in his life and didn't even know it and goes out and tries to do this job he's supposed to be doing and he's easily overpowered. His eyes are gouged out and he loses everything. Luke 4.14 says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. In Luke 4.32, it says they were astonished at his doctrine. His word was with power. In Luke 24.49, Jesus said this. He said, wait in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and you will have power from on high. You go wait in Jerusalem. I think part of our problem is we don't want to meet God's conditions of wait. He says, you tarry in Jerusalem. I'm going to send. And we say, God, I don't have time to wait. We live in this instant jet age. We have instant replays, instant coffee, instant potatoes. We want instant power, instant spirituality, instant revival. Who wants two weeks of meeting with God? When was the last time you got with God and said, God, I'm not going to move from this place until once again I know your reviving presence in my life? We don't do that well. Where are we at? We, we need to acknowledge that first. Let's just say um, that Dan decided to have a, a, a building program, and we're going to build a, a, a new uh, missionary home for me or whatever. No, uh, something. And, and, uh, and, and so we all went down to the St. Joe River and to the property there, and we're starting cutting down trees. And, and as you're cutting down your tree, um, the axe head flies off your handle, and it lands there in the St. Joe River. Now, just for today, I want you to let this axe head represent everything you are with God and the axe handle everything you are apart from God. So, so, so this axe handle is all your knowledge, your character, determination, your talent, education, ability, potential, personality, everything apart from God, let that be the axe handle. And then let this axe head represent the presence, the power, and the peace of God. And I want to suggest that in, in our day, in the church today, in many, many lives, if not the majority, the axe has flown off. It's at the bottom of a river someplace, and all we're left with is an axe handle. And the problem is we're trying to impact our families, our lives, we're trying to impact our communities, and all we're doing is beating on a tree with a dead stick. That is a solid tree right there, isn't it? Metal tree, no wonder. Anyway, so you have, you have three choices at this point, three options. Option number one is you can quit. Some people do that. They just give up. They say, I I've tried this. I I I've gone to church. I've, I've read my Bible. I've listened to preachers. I I'm getting no place. You can quit. Good people do that. Jeremiah did that. Prophet Jeremiah did that. And, and here's Jeremiah. He preached for 40 years with no converts. Think about that for a minute. No one is inviting him to the build a bigger church conference. I want to tell you, 40 years, no converts. And in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, they, they've stoned him with tomatoes, thrown him in a pit. He's waist deep in mud, and he sits there in this pit, and he says, God, I am never going to speak or make mention of your name again. He quit. That didn't last long because God's words got fire shut up in his bones, had to have expression. But, but good people can come to that point. They said, they said, I've read all the books, I, I, I've, I've got the counsel, I've done it, but still there's no joy. I'm just going to hang on for the second coming. You can quit. That's probably not many of you because you're here this morning. Or you can fake it. And this is what many of us do. You're cutting down your tree out there in the woods and the axe head flies off and so no one's really watching. They're cutting their tree. You just keep on swinging. 
keep on hitting that tree with a, a dead stick. And, and, and you come in for lunch, and somebody says, man, that guy's a hard worker. Look at all the sweat he worked up. Another guy says, yeah, I walked past his tree. He was swinging so fast, I couldn't see the accent. That guy's a hard worker. But you come back to that tree a year later, it'll look just the same. You can't cut down a tree with a dead stick. Now, it'd be a little more beat up. You, you can beat things up. But, but you're not going to fell any trees. And, and, and that's what we're doing. We're going through the motions. We, we, we dress right. We look right. We, we say, we put on the, we put the band-aids over our heart and we come to church with our band-aid smile and our band-aid life and we're going through the motions and, and we're, we're not felling any trees. We're not impacting anything. You, you, you can, or you can go and get it back. And that's what these next two weeks are about. These next two weeks are about getting the accent back on the handle of your life. Now, if, if you're going to do that, you've got to start by acknowledging where you're at. That's, we talked about that in Sunday school. If, if we're lost, you've got to find a starting point. Where is north? What direction am I really headed? So, so to acknowledge that, we've got to ask ourselves, where have I lost God's power in my life? And I want to suggest three areas you lose the power of God in your life. Number one is through pretense. Samson pretended. He pretended to be friends with the enemy. We didn't read that, but the next few verses, after that first few verses, he, he goes down to the Philistines, and he pretended to be smarter than the enemy. He gave them a riddle. You can read that passage later if you want. He pretended to be stronger than the enemy. Even at the end there, he goes out and, and in his own power. And when you live a life of pretense, when you go through the motions, you lose the power of God in your life. Do you ever go to a costume party, put on some kind of a mask? You know the first thing you want to do when you put a mask on? You want to take it off. There's something gross about breathing in your own face. It's just not fun, right? And, and we come to church with our mask on, and we can hardly wait to get out of here to get our mask off. Let me illustrate. Let me ask you a question. I want all of you to answer me out loud verbally, okay? How are you this morning? Good, fine, great, one tired. Okay, uh, good, fine, and great for most of us. Now, the fact is, we're, we're probably not all good, fine, and great, but we just kind of learned that when someone says, how are you, we lie. We, we just tell them, fine, even if we're not fine. A, a typical Sunday morning scene is here this family is getting ready for the church in the morning. Dad is a big help, Right? Yeah, dad, dad gets his coffee and, and uh, you know, he's looking at his phone, seeing how bad Notre Dame got beat or, or whatever, uh, or, I mean, how that they won uh, and whatever, and he's looking at the scores and he's drinking his coffee. Mom, she's getting herself ready, the kids ready, you know, cleaning the house, getting dinner on for when they get back. And, and dad does do one thing. At the appropriate moment, looks at his watch and says, it's time to leave. That's dad's contribution for the morning, right? So now he gets out in the car and starts honking the horn. Come on, we're going to be late. Hasn't helped a bit, but now he's upset because we're going to be late. Mom, she's throwing the kids out the door, Bibles out the door, books out the door, you know, uh, coats out the door. She runs out the door. She gets one leg in the car, and dad starts backing down the driveway. She's got to jump in the car to get in. On the way to church, World War III erupts. One kid wants in the back seat. Now wants in the front seat. I'm throwing it down. And dad's, what's it? why don't we go to church? And then an amazing thing happens. We drive in the church parking lot. It's like a washing machine ringer. Everyone calmly steps out. <laughs> Pastor Green meets us at the door. Says, how you doing today, folks? And we say, fine. Our kids look at us like, what car do you ride in, you know? <laughs> and, and, and we've just learned that 
there are certain things that you do to be acceptable. We, we, we live behind a mask. I heard about a clown who was unemployed and uh, wasn't a lot of jobs for clowns. And so he went to this employment agent to get a job and the, clown, the employment agent said, I don't have a lot of job for clowns. While he was talking, got a phone call and he answered and he said to this little clown, he said, you're not going to believe this, it's the city zoo. They want to know if I have someone who will come down and dress up like a monkey. They're having a shortage of monkeys and they're getting some more shipped in, but it's temporary, but was like, I'll take it, I need a job. So he went to the zoo and they put a monkey outfit on him, baboon head on, put him in this monkey area, a couple of monkeys in there. So monkey see, monkey do, they chatter, each chatter, they eat bananas, they eat bananas, they scratch, each scratch. It wasn't a bad job. Just monkey around all day, not, not bad. And, and, then, and then it got a little boring. He was a showman at heart. And so he realized right next to the monkey area was the lion area. He thought, if I tie a rope on this one tree, I can swing out over the lions. That'd be a pretty neat show. And so he rigged it up. Next day, zoo opened up, got there in the tree, grabbed the rope, and swung out over the lions. The crowd oohed and awed and gasped as the lions snarled and growled, and they swung back to safety. He became the hit of the zoo. It made the front page of the paper, come see our death-defying monkey. And every day he would do this thing. One day the crowds lined up as far as he could see, waiting for him to do his thing, got up there, grabbed the rope. They said, he's going to do it. He swung over the lions, and this time the rope snapped, and then he dropped from that den of lions. He pulled that baboon off. He said, help, help, get me out of here. One of the lions said, be quiet, you fool. Both lose our jobs. Now, now, what's that a picture of? It's a picture of the average church because we come in with our mask. And how are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. And we can hardly wait to get out of here to get our mask off. So I was a meeting in Mississippi some time ago. It was a real deep church. Like, this is wide, really deep. And there's a deacon set all the way in the last row. He kind of let people in and out. He came to give a testimony one night. He said, you know, I'm a, I'm a deacon here in this church. I got saved seven years ago. He'd been an alcoholic. His wife had come. They'd prayed. He'd been gloriously saved and delivered from alcohol. And, and um, he said, and so after about four years, you made me a deacon. And that was okay for the first couple of years. But about a year ago, he said, I started to involve myself in some of those things I was involved in before I got saved. He said, for the last year, I've stood back at the back door, told you I was fine. I've not been fine. I've come this morning to resign as a deacon. I'm not qualified to be deacon and, and to ask you to forgive me for lying to you for the past year. Now, I've thought about that many times. Why did he wait a year? Why not the first time he walked past that bar and walked in, go to one of his fellow deacons and say, listen, I, I can't be around that. Some people can't. I can't be around that. Uh, would you pray for me? I, I must went to bar. Why not the first time he took a drink, go to his pastor and say, pastor, I haven't had a drink in six years. That stuff controls me. I can't be Would you pray for me? Why did he wait a year? You know why I believe? Because everybody else was an axe handle also. And he thought, how can I acknowledge that, that I am not real when everyone else is, but everyone had their mask on? And, and so he just walked around bumping off everybody else rather than being honest enough to take the Band-Aid off and let God do the heart transplant. What if, what if someone has followed you around this last week and recorded everything that went on in your life this past week on their phone? And then we flashed on this screen the highlights of your life this past week. Every conversation you've had, everything you've watched on TV, every website you've gone to, everything you've done at your job, and we just flashed up, there's life at your, life at the greenhouse. I got to go over greens. Life at the Browns house, whatever. Uh, life at the Joneses. That's bad too. Okay, life at, um, anyway, life at your house. There it was up on the screen. 
What do you want to go? <gasps> Not that family. They don't talk like that to each other. They wouldn't watch that, do that, say that. Go, they're not like, would you ever be shocked to know what goes on behind the doors of your home? If so, then you're an axe handle. You're saying one thing about your life here, but living another way behind the doors of your home. And when you do that, you lose the power of God in your life. When you tell your kids to do something and you're not doing it, when you talk further down the road than you're walking, you lose the power of God in your life. And maybe you've lost the, the handle. Maybe you've lost the accent in your life because you've been living a life of pretense. Here's the second one. They, they go hand in hand. It's, it's pride. We lose the power of God when we get proud. Samson got proud. He, he, told, he told his parents what to do. Get me a wife. Told himself what to do. He was his own God. He even at one point told God what to do. Pride is a, is, is a hard thing to define. It's a hard thing to explain. So, so rather than defi defining it, let, let me give you some symptoms and, and see if this applies to you. Pride causes me to do a number of things. It causes me to deal with respectable problems rather than real problems. If I was to say to you, what do you want to see God do in your life in these next days? You might say, well, I want to be a better Christian. I hope every Christian wants to be a better Christian. I want to be a better husband, better father. Those are great things. Ever been in a, a, a prayer meeting where, where the, the pastor said, anybody have any request? And somebody said, yes, w would you pray for me? I am a gossip. I have a wicked gossiping tongue. No, we don't do that. We say, pray for Aunt Susie's ingrown tonal surgery, you know, whatever. And, and it's fine to pray for that, but we don't deal with real issues. We deal with respectable things because our pride won't let us get honest about what really is going on. We, we try to leave a better impression of ourselves than is honestly true. Now, those of you that are going to come during these days, you'll find it real quickly. We don't, we don't have it together. As, as a ministry, as a team, we, we've not come here to bring revival. We didn't bring it with us. It's not in the suitcases or some of you are, are putting up with our team and putting our team members up uh, in your home, and we appreciate that. But our team members are not perfect. We don't have it in our truck. We, we've come here to obey with you, to pray with you, to believe with you. Do the same thing in, in our lives. We're believing God to do in yours. We don't have a perfect marriage. We don't have perfect kids. I'll, I'll share that with you as you walk through these days together. The, the, the fact is, if you could see in my heart, you'd spit in my face. But we've not come here to give you something. And if you give the impression to your class or your family or to your church, you've got it all together, you don't have any needs, then you're an axe handle. Because the fact is we are all nothing more than a walking bag of needs. And our, our failure to be honest about our life just causes us to move farther and farther away from the power of God. We also are proud when we are more concerned about what people think than what God knows. There'll be times during these days where, where God will prompt you to go to a prayer room or go to your knees or come to an altar or talk with somebody or do something and you'll sit there and say, um, I'm not going to do that. What, what do people think? I'm, I'm, I'm a leader here. I've been here a long time. I'm a senior adult. I, I know that. I'm a teacher. Uh, and, and you'll sit there and fold your arms, and, and you'll be more concerned about your reputation and the appearance to others than what God knows about you. How sad is that? that that's that know one truth, skip over, obey, and teach one truth. And we can know it and teach it, but we don't want to obey it. And it's because of our pride, because we, th we think that we have to operate out of a position 
of perfection. The reason we can't share our needs is because, well, what if there's a decision to be made in the church, and if I've been honest about my life, they may not come to me. And I've got to operate out of position of power. When you operate from position of power, you're the weakest person in the room. And the reality is we are all powerless apart from God. Here's another one. We, 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 pride causes us to change the name of sin. God calls it lying. We call it a white lie, whatever that is. God calls it cheating. We call it abnormal social development. Yeah. God calls it immorality. We call it the new morality. God calls it gossip. We call it sharing prayer requests. Yeah, right. I'm only telling you this so we can pray about it. No, no, that's not true. You've you, you got a wicked heart, and you just can hardly wait to get it out. We change the name of sins. We defend and justify and blame. If you just knew the husband I'm married to, if you just knew my parents, my wife, that, what that former pastor did, what that former boss did, your past may explain your behavior. It does not excuse your behavior. There are some things that have happened, certainly that have been horrendous in many of your past, but your past, even though it explains some things, it does not excuse wrong choices, wrong behavior. Our tendency is just to blame whoever. Here's the third thing. We lose the power of God by personal disobedience. When you disobey, Samson disobeyed. He, he ran with the world, lived with the world, and died with the world. And because of his disobedience, he, he lost everything. You know what it takes to stop God working in your life? All it takes is one no. Kind of the theme of our ministry uh, currently, the, the tagline is to say your next yes to God. Helping you say your next yes to God. And, and, and I pray that these days you'll say yes. You know what it takes to stop God working? Your next no to God. And some of us will never go a step farther in our life because we have said no to God in some area and we're trying to say yes in all these other areas, but God said, yeah, but what about this thing I've already talked to you about? Most of us don't need to hear another message. If we'd obey one-tenth of what we know, we'd be spiritual giants. It's not more truth. It's obedience to the old truth. It's no one truth. Obey one truth. Teach one truth. And the problem is we, uh, we're not really good at that. Adam disobeyed. He lost Eden. Moses disobeyed, lost Canaan. David disobeyed, lost his family. Achan disobeyed, lost everything. What does God ask you to do? And you just said no. We were in Texas some years ago, a pretty large church, 3,000 in Sunday school. We're staffing the first week, and the children's Christian ed director who was in charge of the Sunday school program of 3,000 in Sunday school said, um, Seven years ago, I lost the power of God in my life. So I was at a smaller church, wasn't making a lot of money. Went to cash my check at a grocery store. Went to tell her there. She gave me my money, and, and she turned and walked away to take care of something else. And as she turned to walk away, I reached out to take my stack. Well, there was another stack sitting there where she'd been counting it out. And, and she left, so I just kind of took that other stack and pulled her into my stack. It wasn't a whole lot, but it was a lot to me. He said, for seven years, God has said, and you stole that money. For seven years, God has said, take it back. For seven years, I've said no. He said, for seven years, I've been an ax handle. How can you be in charge of a church of 3,000 as an ax handle? He had a lot of charisma, a lot of ability, natural talent. But he said, everything I've done the last seven years at judgment, it's going to burn up. Wood, hand, stubble. It was all in my own energy, my own effort, because I was saying no to God for seven years. He went back that week and 
took the money back and made the thing right, got the accident back on the handle of his life. I was in Pennsylvania. A man in his 60s came, and he said, 30 years ago, God called me in the ministry. I said, God, I'm making lots of money. I'll give it to missions. And he had done that, given lots of money. But he said, I've, I've lost everything. All my, all my kids are messed up, divorced. My, my life's a mess. Is it too late for me? No. But you've got to go back to where you lost it. Maybe you married the person you're married to without parental consent. You don't divorce them, but you go back and ask forgiveness. What is it in your life you've said, God, I will do anything, but I'm not going to do that. You fill in the blank. I'll go anyplace. I'm not going to go there. I'll give anything. I'm not going to give that. Whatever you've said no to God about until you say yes, you'll never go any farther. So how do we get the accident back in our life? That's these next days are about, number one, cry out to the master. It's not about life action. It's about Jesus. You cry out to the master. And then you go back to where you lost it. You identify that. In the Old Testament, there's a story of a prophet who starts a little seminary. He's got these preacher boys, and, and, and he's training them, and, and they need to have a dormitory. So they go down, they, they start chopping down some trees, and this very event happens. The axe head falls in the water. And, 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 and this seminary student comes to the professor and says, Prof, I, I can't cut down more trees. The axe head, I lost it. And, 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 and what did the professor say? He said, where, where, where'd you lose it? And he, go to, and he took him, he showed him right here at this spot in the river. He went back to where he lost it. And you know the story how he throws some sticks in the water and that, that iron axe head floats to the top. But that axe head didn't jump out of the water and jump onto the handle. The, the prophet then turns to him and says, now you reach out and pick it up. I want to suggest in these days, God is going to float past your life some answers to your marriage, to your family, to your personal walk. But you're going to have to reach out and take what God's offering. You've you got to be here to receive that, and you're going to have to accept what God is offering you in your life. And you can get the accent back on the handle of your life. The, these could be life-changing days for you, but it's your choice. I pray that you will, in these days, make God the priority. And that once again, you'll know the power, the presence, and the peace of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Are you tired of hitting that tree with a dead stick? Trying to change your family and change your people at your job and change your community and just feel like you're just getting no place? Did you ever know a time in your life when God was real? When there was joy and peace and power? That's probably the fact that you're a follower of Christ. If you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to come talk with me, come talk with Dan, one of the staff, one of our team. Don't walk out of here without making sure you've settled your relationship initially with Christ. But, it, but if you are a follower of Christ and you say, but I, I just, I don't have that joy, that peace, that power I once did. I, I'm tired of hitting that tree with a dead stick and I want it back. But I want to challenge you to pray a simple prayer. Don't, don't pray this until you thought about it. Here's the prayer. Lord, I give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do in my life in these next days. Now think about that for a minute. Lord, I give you the freedom. Not, not what Steve says, not what Dan says, not what Jimmy says. Lord, I give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do in my life in these next days. If you can pray that honestly and openly, I, I, I believe God will change your life. Lord, I give you the freedom 
to do whatever you... Now, listen, don't pray that prayer and then not give God your, God your schedule. Don't, don't say, God, I give you freedom and then not ask him where to be tonight at 6 o'clock. Now, if he tells you to be someplace else, that's fine. But you're going to ask him at least. Lord, I give you the freedom to do whatever you want to do in my life. I, I, I am tired of hitting that tree with a dead stick. I, I want to know, again, the peace and the power and the presence of God in my life. And I'm giving you the freedom to do whatever you want to do in my life in these next days. You take a few moments, internalize that truth, pray that prayer, then Dan's going to come and close the service in a word of prayer. Lord, you know every beat of our heart. You know every thought in our mind. And Lord, you know what we might have never been willing to admit to another person. You know whether we're swinging with our axe handle on or off, our axe head on or off. And Lord, you know if we have been living the way Samson was living, filled with so much potential for your power to flow through us, and yet being sidelined by needless, ridiculous compromise. Lord, you know the extent to which we need revival. You know how much I need revival. Lord, for the rest of this day, we want to hear your voice in our hearts. We want to know what you'd like us to do. We, we want to ask you that question in all honesty, Lord. What would you like us to do next? Do you want us to be a part of this? How do you want us to respond to the truth that we hear? So we commit ourselves afresh to you in this time. We look forward. We know that when that axe head is back on the handle of our lives, that you could use us and our church to do amazing things that would bring great glory to you for all of eternity. And that everything that you have for us in the future hinges on our response to you in the present. Whether our heart is saying yes or no. Lord, with our whole hearts, this morning we say yes. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.